Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm here with Brian Egan, who is currently a partner at Stepto in Washington, D.C., and is the former senior legal official with the White House, the NSC, and the Department of State under the Obama administration. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Brian uh, and the privilege, really, while he was at the NSC and during his tenure as legal advisor at State. Brian, welcome, and thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Catherine. It's great to be here. So, Brian, Iran. Now, as you well know, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been quite high since the Trump administration pulled out of the nuclear deal, which I know was, was near and dear to the work that you did, and began reinstating sanctions on Iran. Now, in mid-July, to review the bidding for our listeners, Trump claimed that the U.S. had taken, quote, defensive action to down an Iranian drone over the Strait of Hormuz, and a strategic, which everyone, I think, should know is a strategic sea passage in the Gulf. Iran denied that incident. And more recently, the Trump administration has imposed sanctions after the very high-profile and recent drone attack targeting Saudi Arabia's oil fields. Now, just last week, at the UN General Assembly, Trump very much blamed Iran for that attack. And in his third address, he continued to criticize the 2015 nuclear deal and called on other nations to, as he put it, confront Iran. Also last week, we had the UK, France, and Germany issuing a statement that they believed that Iran was responsible for the drone attack on Saudi Arabia's oil fields, which Iran continues to deny. So all of this is obviously a very high-profile, hot-button issue. What is your assessment of the state of affairs with Iran? I guess I would describe relations between the U.S. and Iran as uh, very difficult, tense, and extremely unpredictable at this point. Now, some might say that this would describe virtually all aspects of U.S. foreign policy under the current president. Uh, But I think that this is really particularly true with Iran. And I think with maybe with the exception of North Korea, the Iran-U.S. relationship is the most dangerous relationship facing the United States uh, at this time. In a way, this tension is, of course, it's nothing new. We're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the takeover of the U.S. embassy in Tehran seizing of diplomats and others at the embassy. Um, And we're also coming up on the 40th anniversary of U.S. sanctions on Iran, which, as you mentioned, are one of the real catalysts in uh, both the tension and the diplomacy between the United States and Iran. Uh, So I think that we've been living with tension between our countries for a long time. I think the tension has gotten higher. Uh, I think that is attributed in no small amount to the decision by the Trump administration to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, in 2018, uh, and also the decision of the Trump administration to really ramp up sanctions on Iran even more than they had been in place before the JCPOA. Uh, The sanctions that are in place now are targeted not at U.S. companies so much as at companies from around the world doing business in Iran. Uh, And these sanctions, which are a relatively new and controversial part of uh, U.S. diplomacy and sanctions policy, 
um, are having some impact. Some of the listeners will know that these sanctions have been described in some quarters as contrary to international law. There's actually quite a literature on them dating back to the 1990s use of unilateral extraterritorial sanctions by the United States. Nonetheless, uh, I think they have proven to be rather effective in convincing global companies to uh, do what the United States wants them to do uh, in response to the use and the threat of these extraterritorial sanctions. Uh, so, so we're definitely at a critical point in our relationship, and I, I think a, a dangerous point. So on that, and as you rightfully point out, the tensions have been high, you know, going as far back as, as four decades. Where do you think this critical point, where do you think the situation is likely to go next? And, and obviously, how serious is the risk of a U.S.-Iran military conflict and including how the recent departure of Bolton from the NSC may impact that assessment. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. And, and I do think that the president uh, is wildly successful in being unpredictable in terms of uh, what he is thinking, what his administration will do. And so it makes any question like this uh, very risky to answer in a way, because more likely than not, you're going to be wrong. But I think we know from what we see from Iran that they believe that they're somewhat backed into a corner, uh, particularly on oil sales, where the United States has really targeted their extraterritorial sanctions at countries and companies around the world who are purchasing Iranian crude oil or supporting those purchases. So Iran's response has basically been, if we can't sell our oil Nobody else in the region will be able to sell oil either. And as you mentioned, uh, the attack on Saudi oil facilities a few weeks ago has been attributed to Iran by the United States and uh, key countries in the European Union. Uh, Iran has denied responsibility, uh, but it certainly fits within the, the pattern, the threat that Iran has made with respect to oil production in the region. And I think at some point the U.S., almost has to respond um, with uh, potentially with military force. If there was the incident in June where Iran shot down a, a U.S. reconnaissance drone that was uh, allegedly near the Iranian coast. Uh, this is the incident that's been reported where the United States and President Trump had allegedly uh, called for a military strike on Iran in response. And then the president allegedly called that strike off at the last moment uh, to the surprise of Mr. Bolton and many of his advisors. Uh, and then we, most recently, the U.S. and President Trump have threatened uh, military response uh, uh, in response to the Saudi Arabia action. But no, of course, no response has been taken so far. But at some point, I think the U.S. may almost be forced to respond if there are continued provocative incidents on the Iranian side. So let me ask you on the, on the Saudi side, the, the Saudi foreign minister uh, actually came to the Council on Foreign Relations last week in a presentation that was public and took the position that Saudi Arabia is not interested in an armed conflict with Iran. How do you think the position of the Saudi government, which appears to, in some instances, at least hold some sway with the Trump administration. How do you think that plays into the question 
of the risk of a U.S.-Iran military conflict, or does it? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. You know, and thinking about it first from a legal perspective, um, if an attack takes place on Saudi Arabian soil uh, and it's against Saudi Arabia, the United States, um, in some sense, would be at its strongest legal footing international law matter if it were taking action to defend an ally uh, who had the right to take action in self-defense, for example. Uh, If, on the other hand, an attack takes place in Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia uh, does not uh, believe that the attack merits a military response, I think the U.S. could be in a more difficult position as a legal matter and as a policy matter to respond by using military force. So I do think that that is going to play a role in the U.S. calculations, as uh, will the president's own apparent predilections against the use of military force. He's been uh, open about his desire not to uh, start another conflict. It's been reported that when Mr. Bolton was uh, removed from his position last month, that was in large part because of differences of opinions with the president on the circumstances in which the United States should use military force. Uh, and so there, I think there are a lot of factors, including the Saudi factor that you mentioned, that would go into a calculation by the U.S. government about the use of military force in response to an attack on a Saudi Arabian facility. So in a, in a recent piece you authored for the legal website, Just Security, you went through some of the circumstances under which a U.S. military operation against Iraq, excuse me, Iran, would be lawful. Uh, And I think, as you just mentioned, one important limitation on President Trump's use of military force would be that it must comply with international law. Um, I guess two questions there. What are the ways, and you've described uh, described the self-defense and defense of allies, but what are the ways in which international law would shape this decision-making process And perhaps even more critically, if the Trump administration were to take military action against Iran, absent a basis in international law, what do you think would be the consequences for the U.S.? Mm -hmm. So I I think that the Trump administration, uh, just like other administrations, including the administration that you and I were serving under, um, will consider international law uh, as one of its factors in deciding whether use of the use of force is appropriate in a given circumstance. Uh, they've at least said, said as much when they've been asked that question. Um, and uh, so for the Trump administration, there'd be a question about whether the use of force is authorized under U.S. law, which we, we can talk about, um, and under international law. They would have to consider both questions independently. And under international law, the question would be whether the use of force was consistent with the UN Charter, which is a treaty that the United States uh, belongs to. Uh, And most uh, observers believe that the UN Charter authorizes the use of force in essentially three different circumstances. Uh, One is when the UN Security Council has authorized the use of force. So think about the uh, the Libya context in uh, the early 2010s. Uh, when uh, NATO and others led a bombing campaign uh, in res- with the authorization of the Security Council. 
the second area is self-defense. When a country acts in self-defense, uh, the, they are acting consistent with rights reserved under the UN Charter. Um, and U.S. view is that self-defense would include self-defending the United States itself. It would also include acting in the collective self-defense of one of the United States allies. So if there was an attack on Saudi Arabia that uh, justified a response in self-defense, the uh, U.S. could potentially respond in kind. And then the third area is uh, with the consent of the host government on their own soil. So if, for example, Saudi Arabia believed that there were Iranian invaders in Saudi Arabia, far-fetched hypothetical, um, and the, they asked for the U.S. assistance in carrying out operations against those insurgents or invaders, uh, they could do so, and the U.S. could provide that assistance consistent with international law. Uh, so the U.S. would be looking at that framework now. The U.S. has uh, uh, interpreted self-defense fairly broadly, uh, or historically, uh, and uh, I think that an attack on a military facility, military aircraft, a ship, et cetera, um, would almost certainly be something that the U.S. government would believe it could respond to with uh, an, a, a proportionate attack uh, in, in its own self-defense. And I think you've heard, you've heard this as much as I have, Brian. Um, in some instances, one question that comes up uh, with respect to international law is the idea that there's no enforcement mechanism, there's no teeth, so to speak. What, what do you think the consequences would be if the, the president took the position that the U.S. need not comply with international law in this respect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the criticisms, not only in this area, but in other areas of international law. Well, it, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't punish those who decide not to comply. So why should, why should those who do comply bother complying? Um, I, I, I think that the main, uh, one of the main incentives for complying with international law and for articulating a theory of the case under international law is to maintain the precedent that you expect others in the international community to do the same. Uh, and so when Russia invades Crimea, for example, one of the main weapons used by the United States and one of the more difficult arguments for Russia was that this invasion uh, violated international law and it puts countries on the defensive that do so it opens the door to things like multilateral sanctions in a way that's not possible when a country acts lawfully. Uh, and so I think that there, it's a mistake to think about uh, the lack of enforcement in the domestic law sense as meaning that there are no incentives to comply with international law on the international plane. Um, so it, it's, I don't think that that argument, you know, there, there's some merit to it, but I think it's more complicated than it seems at first blush. So, so let me ask you this, Brian, because obviously while you were um, serving in government as a legal advisor, whether in the White House, the NSC, the State Department, ultimately you had a client and that client was, was President Obama. 
And I imagine there were instances where the question of international law would come up and perhaps one of <laughs> the president or, or other members of policy team would ask uh, the question of how is compliance with international law in the U.S. interest, which is obviously a refrain we are also hearing these days uh, from the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. What is the, what, what in your mind, what comes to mind when people ask you or, or, or question whether or not international law is in compliance with international law is in the interest of the United States? I think the answer is clearly yes. It's in the United States' interest to comply with international law. And the reason I think that is because the structures uh, around which interlo- international law was created Uh, treaties, including multilateral treaties, international organizations like the United Nations, international alliances, international trade organizations. These were structures that were created with the U.S. vision in mind, the rule of law, uh, international peace and stability with countries like ours at the head of the table, uh, helping create the rules, driving the rules. Um, And the rules are largely rules that we set uh, with our allies, but we set as the rules that we believe are appropriate to maintain world order after World War II, essentially. Um, And so to say that we don't derive benefits from this system, I think is very short-sighted. And it really misses some of the lessons that I think my grandparents learned in fighting in World War II that there, there is a benefit to an international order and to a set of rules that everybody understands and agrees are the rules, even if there are those who don't always comply with the rules. Um, so I, it's, I think it would be very short-sighted to say, well, because there's no, quote, enforcement mechanism, there's really no benefit to the United States in complying with this set of rules because we, have, we benefit from the system of rules, we helped establish the system, and the system is largely based on our own values. So, Ryan, there appears to be a divergence for those watching closely in terms of the U.S. policies towards two nuclear threats, Iran and North Korea. So we've obviously gone through the pullout of the Iran deal with, res- with respect to nuclear weapons. But at the same time, we, we see perhaps a historic level of contact with Kim Jong-un's government. How should we understand legally and politically the Trump administration's differing approaches to Iran and North Korea? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, too. Um, I'll try the, the, the legal approach first, where with, with respect to Iran and the Trump administration came into uh, power, Iran was actually subject to a very elaborate set of legal requirements as a matter of U.S. domestic law, where the U.S. government had to certify every six months to the U.S. Congress, which was not a big fan of the nuclear deal, that Iran was continuing to comply with the nuclear deal and that the nuclear deal was within the U.S. national interest. And uh, if Iran failed to comply with the nuclear deal, or if the Trump administration concluded, as they did in 2018, that the nuclear deal was no longer in the U.S. national interest, then Congress had effectively mandated a return to pretty significant sanctions on Iran. And so, although those sanctions currently are very consistent with the Trump administration's own approach to Iran, there's a a set of legal structures behind them that, uh, to some extent, 
attempt to constrain the executive branch's discretion in deciding what to do, uh, particularly in terms of loosening uh, sanctions uh, and restrictions on Iran. Uh, that's Now, that same framework is not in place with respect to North Korea, although North Korea is subject to very comprehensive sanctions, both from the United States and the UN Security Council. Um, but so as, as a legal matter, though, I think the Trump administration has a bit more room, room to maneuver in terms of offering potential sanctions relief to North Korea than it does with respect to Iran. Um, as a political matter, this is not my forte by any means, but I just think from the U.S. perspective, uh, this goes back to where we started. The U.S. perspective on Iran is radically different than it has been on North Korea, at least for the last uh, four decades, where Iran has been seen as one of the biggest threats to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, to Israel, to U.S. Uh, counterterrorism interests uh, for many years. Uh, North Korea uh, certainly is seen as a threat on the nuclear front, but it is seen, I, I don't think it is seen as a serious a threat in some of these other areas. And as a result, the political pressures with respect to North Korea, the U.S. domestic side, differ pretty significantly from the political pressures with respect to U.S. policy on Iran. Ryan, thank you so much for joining. Uh, and for those listeners who are interested in hearing about this and more with respect to international law, please join the American Society of International Law. <laughs>